Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is brought to you by Node40, Crypto.com, and Gemini. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Hey, everyone. It's Bully. Welcome to Bully Esquire. Super pumped about my guest today. It's Guy Swan. Um who is an expert on all things Bitcoin, including Taproot, which is the new network upgrade Bitcoin is undergoing currently. And I'm going to pick his brain about that today. So Guy, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Yeah, man, doing great. Uh, Thanks for having me. Good, good. Well, I'm happy to hear that. Um, So, you know, before we kind of get into the nuances of taproot and kind of the bitcoin network upgrade and things i'm always interested in to hear how people got into crypto it's sort of a strange space so you know i think everyone's story is unique and interesting so let my listeners know how you how you ended up here yeah so um uh i've always been kind of uh always been the nerdy science guy um uh was all through you know, high school and everything. I did science Olympiad for like 11 years. And, um, and so tech has always been fascinating to me. I actually had intended to do computer science in school, but my other love was like ideas and stories. So I ended up doing, uh, going to film school. Um, and, uh, uh, post that, uh, I, uh, went out to LA for a little while, kind of bounced around, um, and kind of ended up back in my home area of running my own media business and my brother and I were living together and he was studying economics and we I was just fascinated with um kind of economic theory I dabbled a little bit into it in college um and he was working with me a lot so we just ended up kind of going down this economics rabbit hole and he would argue with his professors because he would be taught something in, you know, Keynesian theory one day. And then the very next day or two days later, he would be given something that, oh, at a bigger scale, this doesn't matter anymore. This isn't true. And he'd be like, both of these things can't be true at the same time. Um, And so we would come home and we would debate about it and we would search and look and kind of stumbled upon Austrian economic theory. Um, And suddenly things were starting to click and we were just kind of doing this all on our own. And, going down this libertarian Austrian econ rabbit hole. And out of nowhere, um, the combination of my tech circles and the economic circles and the libertarian circles, we kind of bumped into Bitcoin. Um, And that night I was, I mean, the very night that we heard about it, look, one of his friends that he was arguing with on, I think Facebook or something was like, you should check out this Bitcoin thing. You'd be interested. And this was back in like 2011, I think. and uh uh we just immediately like everything it was it was my fascination with like BitTorrent and like you know file sharing and distributed systems and just techie crap uh and then austrian economic theory basically codified like sound money into into a system 
and uh, and privacy. I mean, it was just like it was just everything. It was like this trifecta of all the things that we were interested in at the time. And so we went, we just went down the rabbit hole. I mean, like, like it was like, oh, there's an opening. Let me just, let me just dive head first. And uh, that night, I remember I tell this story because it's so, we just, we read through the white paper. We were just, uh, we were not sober and we were just <laughs> going, we were just going off about like what this means. Oh my God, this is going to be huge if it works, blah, blah, blah. And then like the sun was coming up. Like we had just gone the entire night. It was like seven o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning. And it was like, shit, we got to go to sleep. Um, and, uh, or I guess we'll skip sleep that day. Sure. Um, but I was just, I was just full on. And uh, we, uh, I, so, and I was like, this was this high, you know, pie in the sky dream at the time. And I didn't really know what the hell I was talking about. You know, I had this vague idea of what the hell Bitcoin was. It was just this, oh my God, we just solved all the world's problems kind of thing. Um, and uh, but I couldn't explain it to anybody, you know. Um, and I decided that uh, the tiny amount of money, and we were, we were poor. Like we, we, <laughs> we were dirt poor. You know, there were months where our water was cut off because we didn't meet the bill and we'd rush out to like, be like, no, don't cut it off. <laughs> like um, uh, it was, it was a bit of a rough time. And uh, I took, the only money that I had in the world and invested at the very tip, tip top of one of the first bubbles um, uh, when it was like in the $30 range. Um, and subsequently watched all of it vanish. Um, just absolutely bleed out for like four months and I thought, oh, I've just found this new thing. I'm such a good investor. I see something that nobody else sees, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I put um, uh, $1,000 into it, or we actually, it was, it was us together, um, put $1,000 at about 30 bucks. And then watch that. I remember I did the math one day after I just watched it fall. And this was everything that we had to our name. Like we, you know, we couldn't meet bills, but we had just invested in Bitcoin. Um, and I did the math on it one day and it did not even cover our utilities. It was like $72 worth um, because it just it plummeted down to like a buck, mm -hmm. like, like 90 cent or something like that. And so I immediately was like, I have just invested in a dream. I have, I have purchased something that I know nothing about, um, except this vague ass idea that is going to solve all our problems. I can't explain it to anybody. And I decided that since I'd already lost all my money, um, <laughs> uh, essentially, uh, that I wasn't going to make another investment decision over something I knew nothing about. I was not going to sell it um, because I was scared and ignorant, which I was euphoric and ignorant when I got in. Um, and so I started reading. I was like, let's see if we can kill this thing. Let me learn everything I can about it. And here we are. I haven't stopped reading since. Like, that's just, I just went, I went nose to the grind because I, that day was the first time um, I have since uh, had a couple of these instances, but the first time that I threw up um, over my Bitcoin investment. Um, uh, there has also there have also been many hard won lessons along the way, uh, deleted keys, um, uh, 
all kinds of scares, huge scares of uh, deleting everything. Um, luckily, much of it was recovered. Uh, but this, it's been a hell of a history and uh, traversing from there to here. Uh, but ever since, I've just, I've just notes to the grind, read everything I can. And then one day I was just kind of like, well, one day for about two years, I was like, damn it, I wish I could get all of these in audio because I, I uh, was a technician, uh, internet technician as a job. So I'm driving around all the time and I had all this time to listen to podcasts. And I wished I could just get all of these articles and um, in audio. And then one day I uh, was just like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I guess I'll just do it. And that's how the show started. So now I host Bitcoin Audible, been doing it for three years and some change. And just about daily, I find some piece in Bitcoin, either, you know, a historical piece, some new news item, read it uh, aloud, like Audible, and, uh, and then dive into the ideas, explain them further, apply them to ideas we've covered in the past, or, you know, try to break down an analogy, some technical thing. And, you know, my favorite resources for like diving into the tech stuff is like Shured Bits. Their blog is amazing. Um, and then like Bitcoin Optech. There's so many wonderful resources now to actually dive into this stuff. And I just try to simplify it and make it so that people can listen to it while they're on their commute or whatever it is they're doing, their dishes or something like that. Sure. And uh, I see on your profile, you also have uh, another one where you talk about shit coins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's an idea I had thrown around for a while with uh, a good friend of mine. And uh, it's, it's my like, I try to be nice. Like, I mean, I think there's a lot of altcoin projects that are at least doing really good code and interesting things. Um, I think they're the, the most damaging thing about them is the fact that they are trying to attach it to a token. Um, uh, but aside from that, like I, I I don't think they're all scammers. I think it's just a bad design philosophy um, for a lot of what they're doing. But I try to be nice. Like I just, I'm I'm happy with building bridges. But Shitcoin Insider is kind of my guilty pleasure. <laughs> it's it's my opportunity to just like open up and just rail against them and just say like a flat opinion without any uh uh without any um oh what's the word diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is interesting. So, I mean, as someone, I try to, I try to consider myself like agnostic, I suppose, with regards to all of the different tokens and stuff. You know, I, I'm sort of like you. I just, I find it all very interesting from, you know, both a economics point of view as well as like a political and a technology. And there's all of these kind of competing forces that go into all of this stuff. So I'm just like, I'm just very interested in all of it. But yeah, it, it is interesting to see the, um, I guess, tension between, you know, the hardcore Bitcoiners and then like the Ethereum folks and then just like the the other traders and stuff. There is kind of this schism within the community. What, what do you make of that? Um, I actually, I think people take it way too seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I kind of love that there's this, <laughs> this drama, um, in <laughs> right. it. And, you know, there's a, there's a great piece. I think it's by Gorn. Um, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, it's called, uh, uh, protocol holy wars. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, this is not new. Um, standards have always had this 
fight, you know, like early Linux and Unix standards and early internet standards, just vicious flame wars. Um, and in fact, if you really kind of dig into the history of what's going on now with Bitcoin and even the block size debate as quote unquote vicious as that got, mm -hmm. it was actually pretty, it was actually pretty soft. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was actually pretty easy in comparison to a lot of past uh, protocol wars. It's just that they weren't really public, you know, people weren't paying attention to what was going on in TCPIP um, and uh, kind of the early uh, standards. But standards war, wars are just, that's just how they go. Um, um, one of my favorite books is uh, ACDC, uh, and it's about the war between uh, Westinghouse, uh, Edison, Tesla, and and the, the whole crew um, uh, of uh, whether or not we would have alternating current or uh, direct current as the global or as the national standard for uh, electricity um, and those wars were insane there's a whole book about it and it's just like these people are crazy <laughs> um, so uh, really it's not I, I kind of think it's pretty subdued um, in the grand scheme of things uh, and it's also really fun uh, tribalism is at least entertaining mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but in, in the end um, uh, the more the history, the more history I dig into about protocols, about communication standards and stuff like that, they consolidate. They, they like across the board, they consolidate. And I think the forces in monetary goods are actually much stronger. And history kind of shows this as well, is that the, the tendency to consolidate in a value standard is even stronger because any minor lead in one you can only you can't hold uh like you can use two communication standards at the same time you know you can you can install both of these on a piece of hardware you can have a social media account on facebook and one on twitter you don't have to choose really but if i'm holding quote unquote a hundred dollars worth of value i'm doing it explicitly at the expense of the one that i'm not holding it in mm -hmm. so like in the concept context of like bitcoin or ethereum I can I have to sell I have to forego putting it in Ethereum to put it in Bitcoin and then at the exact same time the more people do that if there is an advantage to any one of them the value is going to consolidate and the feedback loop for the dominant player is going to get out of control um, and the, the opportunity cost of holding it in a smaller um, uh, in a in a less used standard is going to just increase mm -hmm. it's going to compound on itself. Um, and that's why they tend to uh, overall, like maybe there's like a tiny little corner for alternative uh, protocols. Um, but I really think this is more about like making, making sound money and making it work in all the ways we want it to work. And I think the, the key is that if it's not secure, sound, independent value first, then all of the things we do with it are arbitrary because we can already do lots of things like like we have payment systems but we don't use we don't send around you know packets of dirt on our visa card we send around dollars right like we have to have something of value to trade um so all the code is worthless if we haven't first secured the value foundation um and uh so because of that i just think like in a grand in a grand sense, nothing against shitcoiners, um, but I, I just think 
the the tendency to consolidate onto one dominant money is so strong that I just think there are bad places to put money. Um, Cause I just think, I think we'll be able to do everything that any of these altcoins or smart contracts, whatever it is that they have built into the base protocol of something else. Um, we'll be able to do all of it on higher layers on Bitcoin. I think we've already kind of proved that that's just a matter of time. Um, we already have most of the solutions to it. It's just that, you know, they've not been implemented because a lot of them are, you know, nobody wants to put ICOs on Bitcoin because they're not focused on ICOs. Like it's less, it's just not interesting to a lot of them. Um, uh, but uh, nonetheless, you can do it. Um, like lightning and RGB and like all of these things. So if there's real value there, if there's like sustainable systems that um, are, are incredibly value, valuable, like worth billions of dollars and actually do something productive and useful, they'll be built on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's, that's just kind of where I am on, on that in my current thinking. Yeah, no, and uh, those are all really interesting points. And I, I think I agree with you on sort of like the, I said this a few weeks ago, I think the layer one wars are winding down and like Bitcoin and I guess to a lesser extent, Ethereum have such a massive first mover advantage now um, and such huge yeah. network effects that it's like, how how are you going to go out and build a layer one protocol in 2021? It just seems like it would be impossible. <laughs> yeah. And, partic- you know, I, I focus a lot on the regulatory side. I, I'm a trained attorney and stuff. And the SEC has basically said that, you know, Bitcoin is not a security and they've, they've made similar determinations with Ethereum, although not as, you know, not as astute. But either way, I mean, just the regulatory advantage there gives them a gives that network a significant advantage over new ones trying to get going. Um, so there's all of these things. And I think I agree with you that it's like, well, it, it's hard to really make the case now for layer one networks other than some sort of. Um, I guess, dovetailing or way to leverage these other networks. So w- what do you make of like wrapped Bitcoin um, and all of the sort of bridges and atomic swaps and cross-chain things that are happening right now? Um, uh, I think they're band-aids mm-hmm. to what will be long-term soft, like the wrapped Bitcoin thing, um, like the idea that there's uh, more, What was what was the what was the thing that ETH people like spread around all the time more more wrapped bitcoin on ethereum than bitcoin on lightning uh, which i think is wrong in two respects one is uh wrapped bitcoin on ethereum is just bitcoin on extodium it's just a like the way they do it is there's like a federation of uh uh, uh approved quote-unquote approved um merchants and exchanges that you give them your Bitcoin and then they give you like a token, mm-hmm. like just a, like a Ethereum token uh, to basically, if you bring the token back to that exchange of that merchant, you can then withdraw it. Um, so it's, it's a pretty trusted relationship just with the Federation being able to approve a merchant or an exchange. And then it's a fully trusted relationship and that you're just, you're really just giving somebody else your Bitcoin and then getting a, a debt token. Um, and then you can do a whole bunch of stuff on Ethereum, like, which is great and whatever you can stake it to get some other token that's printed. And then you use that to print some other token. I mean, like, it's just kind of a a token printing circle. Um, and, uh, I mean, maybe there's some interesting contracts and, you know, the, 
the loans. I mean, I think uh, like the DeFi, the core of the DeFi stuff is actually used from Bancor code. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, which was, you know, its own token and network, but it just goes to show that the code itself or the, the contract itself is agnostic. Um, same same thing with Tether. Like they're not, <laughs> Bancor isn't like worth all this money because they're using the code. They just ripped it out and stuck it somewhere else. And now they're using it on Ethereum. And same thing with Tether. Tether was originally on Omni. Like people think that just because you're building something, uh, you build some sort of smart contract or use some network for something else, um, some token on top of it, that all that value accrues to the base layer. And it doesn't, it's separate. Like Tether was doing billions of dollars worth of volume on Omni. And everybody was like, oh, Omni's the future because look how Tether's using it and it's going to accrue all this value because Tether needs it. And then they just picked up, they just picked up shop and just dumped it on Ethereum and Omni just died. Like it was just like, it just vanished. Um, and so if the value of the token itself is not in the money, if Omni itself is not valuable as money, you can put all kinds of crap on top of it, but the value is not going to accrue. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, so, and wrapped BTC in that context is just like, well, there's more Bitcoin on Coinbase than there is on wrapped BTC. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's the exact same thing. Um, uh, Coinbase could write off, do all kinds of fun smart contracts and shit. And, you know, you can do an exchange and you can swap back and forth between all the coins on Coinbase. Uh, so, I, I don't see, like, a really fundamental difference there. Um, between the two. And then the other re reason I think it's wrong is because we don't see anything of the Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think I think we probably, uh, the last good estimate by uh, Andrew Polstra, I believe, was that, um, and this was like a year ago and a half ago, um, and they've really kind of become the standard now, but that like 30% of the network was hidden. Um, uh, there was a huge difference between what you could see on the blockchain versus what you could see on the actual lightning network. Um, but I think that's actually a lot bigger now. Um, like strike and zap have been by default using, uh, private channels. Um, Jack Mallers even alludes is like, oh no, yeah, you can't, you can't see anything like we have with our like partners and stuff. We open private channels. We don't make that shit public. Mm -hmm. We, we use it for our business needs, you know, um, and between our own nodes, uh, and I think I think that's actually a consequence of lightning is going increasingly dark. Mm -hmm. um, is that we just can't see details on it. So uh, regardless, I just think that's kind of a, a general silly comparison. And sure. I think most of DeFi is just kind of a token printing circular mess. <laughs> um, and uh, that's actually what the first episode of Shitcoin Insider was about. <laughs> it, it inspired the show. So <laughs> Sure. Yeah, no, and it's really interesting, you know, because I'm sort of, I don't frankly like get to chat and sit down with many like pure Bitcoiners. So it's, it's fun to hear your perspective. <laughs> and um, I mean, they're, they're really good points. And I think you, a lot of folks agree with that sort of point of view. And it seems like people are increasingly taking that point of view. You know, it's fun watch, well, not fun, but it's interesting watching the sort of evolution of people in the space. Cause a lot of people will get into it and they'll be like, Whoa, I can make a ton of money off of altcoins. And then they either lose their ass or they get bored with it. <laughs> yeah. Then they're like, wait, Bitcoin doesn't do that. And then sort of everyone has to go through the, their own journey. But a lot of people end up at the point where they're like, well, all of it's smoke and mirrors except Bitcoin. Um, 
Yeah. And so I don't, I don't, I, I think that's a very sensible take and a take that a lot of folks share. Um, so I know we were going to talk about Taproot and I, I think I could just de- debate monetary policy with you for two hours, but we should, <laughs> we should probably get to the, to the Taproot stuff. So, you know, for my listeners who might not know, can you just like break down sort of how the, how the Bitcoin network works? Like what is Bitcoin core and their developers? And then like, how do these new net network upgrades really come to life? Okay. Okay. So um, kind of the the key element, uh, and this is a really important design philosophy. Um, like the most important thing to understand about Bitcoin, and really it should be the the perception of all cryptocurrencies, is that this is infrastructure layer uh, code. Um, you know, this is TCP/IP. Um, people don't know like down the line when people are using this they're not going to know that they're using like exactly what they're they're using the money is simply going to work um and uh, just like tcp ip and this is something that's pretty fascinating what we know about like these kind of protocol standards is that tcp ip has been largely unchanged since like 1978 um i mean there's been you know cleaning updates and stuff but it's 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 not it's never been quote unquote hard forked um in a sense like it's backwards compatible like you i don't have to like my router doesn't just go off the internet if i don't update it right like everybody speaks the same communication standard um and we didn't have to put a billion we didn't have to put streaming video into the base layer of the internet we built it like two layers up um and I think that's the same thing that we, sh- the same way that we should think about Bitcoin is that this is infrastructure layer code. So we need to move extremely slowly and be extremely careful. And that is kind of the design philosophy. That's the engineering philosophy. And it is a cryptographic system. Um, and all of our value is held and managed by a set of cryptographic rules so if those rules are really really broad um there's a lot of different ways that we could maybe poke holes in it you know um like if you're if you're building a rocket ship to go to the moon and you're writing firmware for it you don't make it so that you can connect it to the internet and install a whole bunch of apps and widgets and shit on it like you you make you make the firmware do the 50 things that the rocket needs to do to get to the moon and then you box that thing in with like 10 different firewalls sure. so that it cannot be complicated. It cannot be interrupted um, because if the firmware doesn't work on the rocket ship, everybody dies. And that's basically what happens with Bitcoin code is that if there's a failure, if there's a problem, if nodes get overwhelmed or shut down or if there's a vulnerability, um, the whole thing goes up in smoke you know like everybody's running some variation essentially of the same code it's the same consensus rules so if there's a problem in that the whole thing goes up in smoke and we don't want that that's a that's a terrible terrible thing there's a lot of money riding on this i think a uh, a couple of developers use the analogy that it's like doing engine maintenance on a plane out on a wing that's carrying everybody in bitcoin through the air 
So while we are flying through the air, they're they're tinkering with the engine and doing maintenance uh, to make sure that this thing keeps flying and uh, trying to upgrade it. So sure, high stakes stuff. Very very high stakes stuff. And today, damn, we're getting near a trillion dollar market cap here. So this is not this is not small potatoes. Um, and uh, so that's kind of the design philosophy. And this is why. Um, the dominant way that we know a cryptographic system is secure is that the fundamental rules, the fundamental pieces of it have not been changed and it continues to survive. That's referred to as the Lindy effect. Like we, like ECDSA, the, one of the cryptographic standards, um, uh, was only deemed secure like 11 or, or assumed secure like 11 or 12 years after its existence, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and it's just because we beat the hell out of it and it didn't die. You know, um, so uh, that's the difference between something called a hard fork and a soft fork is that a hard fork is basically breaking those consensus rules. It's breaking the standards and the, the, the fundamental way that we know that Bitcoin is secure and the way that it has survived in the last 12 years. A soft fork is changing is a minor tweak that's within those current rules so that it's backwards compatible. You know, it's PlayStation 3. It still plays PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 1 games. Um, and uh, in that same way, all of the consensus code prior to a quote-unquote soft fork is the same. And all the new code will still see and validate it. And all the old code will see and validate everything exactly as it always had. Nobody gets knocked offline. There's no conflict between the new code and the old code. The only difference is, is there's a new little piece, like a little string attached to the end of something where we get to do something fun that's new that the old, uh, everybody who hasn't upgraded yet uh, can verify that everything went okay, but they don't know what happened. They're like, they're like, okay, well, all this stuff checks out. I don't know what the hell you guys did in this, but everything that I check, all the consensus rules that I'm part of, are, are good to go so let's put it in the in the chain and that's why there's no fork that's why there's no um complication and you know the network works smoothly uh, but it's really hard to do that you know that's not a that's not an easy thing to do when you're upgrading an engine on a plane uh, that's carrying everybody at once so you do it slowly you do it carefully um and that's kind of the whole philosophy of the soft fork and hard fork and everybody just we need a lot of people updating the code because we've got all these nodes, thousands of nodes, tens of thousands of nodes all around the world. Um, and uh, uh, it's just a very difficult coordination problem. Um, and the main client, you, back to your question about Bitcoin Core, is um, uh, the Bitcoin developers, uh, the reference client, as it's referred to, is Bitcoin Core. Um, this is what the majority of the network is running, some variation. There's so many versions of it now, um, you know, like the most recent six or seven, I think, takes up like 80% of the nodes on the network. Um, uh, most, most recent versions, I mean. Um, and uh, uh, this has been the one, this is an extension of the Satoshi uh, client. Um, and uh, it's gone through a bunch of different lead maintainers. There's now hundreds of contributors, I think like 600 or 700 or something like that. Um, and uh, 
Peter Wella is a huge contributor. He's amazing. He's done so much of the work on Schnorr signatures and Taproot and all this stuff that we're about to get into. Um, Vladimir Vandalon um, is the lead maintainer, I think still, if I'm not mistaken. I know he was like 2017, 18. And it, I, he, I'm pretty sure he's, I mean, he's still contributing everything. I don't see why he wouldn't be. Um, and uh, so there's probably like a base of like 10 to 20 uh, developers that just do a monumental amount of work. Like that's just what they do. Um, and uh, it's gone through a lot of re iterations. It's gone through massive amount of cleanup. You know, most changes are just making things more efficient. You know, it's like, oh, here's 10 lines of code that do this. I think we can do it in six. You know, like, like there's been massive amounts of that of just streamlining it, streamlining it, making it work, making it cleaner, um, making sure that there's no conflicts between, you know, if you write a client in Go and then you write a client in Python, like that code might not line up. You know, there's a lot of work in that when you have multiple languages and that sort of thing. So, and hardware, it, a Windows computer, Intel uh, processor, ARM, you know, all the different complications that you could have that is what they do they make sure that sure. those complications go away and that no matter what machine you run it on no matter what os you run it on no matter what code it's being run in it all talks the same bitcoin language um and we are now debating or working through another soft fork um there have been a number of these in the past one or two kind of contentious um but uh, most of them went through without any trouble um uh, a soft fork called taproot um and this is a really this is a really cool update to bitcoin um i don't know if there's a specific question or you just want me to rant about taproot um. <laughs> well yeah so i i would i would like to unpack a little bit about what you talked about before we get into the actual sort of sure. components of Taproot. So when when these soft forks happen, I suppose there has to be consensus from the Bitcoin core developers. And then they'll, I guess, alert the network ahead of time that um, anyone, uh, anyone partaking in the network has to upgrade mm -hmm. their consensus I guess, language or algorithms or whatever it is. How does that process lots actually play lots out? of arguing. Um, if you read the, like, <laughs> right. the developer chats and stuff, it's kind of hilarious how much they are just, like, it's just a constant argument, <laughs> basically, about how to do it because everybody's <laughs> got their different risk tolerances. Um, uh, typically, like, a lot of people say that, you know, Bitcoin devs are way too conservative about how much risk, you know, we should be able to take in doing something like this, making a change. Um, like there was a couple of month debate over what to do with like one bit in one of the uh, uh, one of the changes. Um, but it, it was actually kind of funny because it got resolved by uh, somebody figuring out how to eliminate the need for the bit. <laughs> um, but uh, so there's it's a lot of it's a lot of argument because nobody wants to simply have the developers come out um, because this has been such a political issue in the past, um, kind of starting with P2SH, which is a, a amazing piece written by uh, Aaron Von Wordham. And I think it's a joint piece with Aaron and somebody else. Um, but it's on the history of P2SH, uh, and I, it's a Bitcoin Magazine piece, and I read it on the show not too long ago. It's probably 20 or 30 episodes back, um, but a really good one about the first kind of 
argument about how to do a soft fork, whether or not the Bitcoin developers can just say, we're going to install this and move forward, or it was, it was all about the methodology and the politics because Bitcoin was getting big enough that it was scary to have one developer group that just says, this is what we're going to do, you know? Um, and that's where a lot of the contention comes from, or a lot of the debate comes on because the developers don't want to be unilaterally making the decision. They technically could already at this point, they could just say, oh, this is going to be the next client, but it pisses a whole lot of people off. They can't get agreement in their own developer community. So it just doesn't happen like that. And they want the community to be installing this. They don't want this to be a default. They want people to have to go in and turn on Taproot um, because that means the developer group just doesn't have control. Um, and uh, which technically they don't because you have to install it, but nonetheless, they're, they're being conservative, right? Um, and uh, so what they do is massive amounts of review. Um, they, they've even started a, uh, the, they did a review club thing because, you know, it's hard to, like, a lot of people don't understand the code. So they've actually had to spend months, like they did this big six month um, thing with like 200 people explain it like just showing them the math and explaining all the code teaching it to a bunch of people so that they can turn around and actually make meaningful comments they didn't want to just everybody just be like trust us you know um like if if i go in and i don't even know how to do the math on taproot i don't know what this code is actually doing i can't give a meaningful review of it you know like people have to know how it works to actually assess it um so uh, they had to they had to teach people how to review it um, to make sure they had a large enough pool of people looking at the code to uh, put in reviews, and that's why this has taken so long because they don't want to just rush anything out. Sure. Um, and uh, but this has been going on for years now, um, and uh, uh, they have merged the code so that it is in the client um, now or in the you know GitHub candidate and such. Um, it's been finalized a hundred different ways um and now mm -hmm. we are at the point where we are just trying to figure out how to turn it on um and that happens to be yet another major point of contention <laughs> because there's different risks and time frames and all sorts of stuff with making that decision um and that's where we are now and it gets it gets really hairy really fast this year, the IRS will require you to report your crypto activity when filing your tax returns. Crypto savvy taxpayers are using Node40 to determine the taxes they owe or losses to claim. Whether you've traded the top five tokens or dove into the new and exciting world of DeFi, Node40 will provide a bulletproof picture of your current tax liability. Exchanges alone can't provide the reports you need. That's why you need a group of crypto tax geeks like the team at Node40 in your corner. With Node40, you won't have to worry about surprises come tax time. Be smart, be prepared, and embrace your crypto lifestyle. My listeners can even take advantage of a bully promo code by signing up today at node40.com slash bully. That's N-O-D-E 40.com slash B-U-L-L-Y. The Crypto.com Exchange offers a suite of retail and institutional trading services where users can tap into deep liquidity, low fees, and the best execution prices. On the Crypto.com Exchange, you can enjoy up to 50% off selected cryptocurrencies and mine the hottest DeFi tokens in one click. What's more, when you join the Crypto.com Exchange, you get paid a 2% deposit bonus. Not enough? 
You can earn up to 10% APR and interest by staking CRO on the exchange and join their trading battles to earn attractive rewards. Sign up for the crypto.com exchange now to enjoy everything they have to offer. Join Gemini, the number one cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Gemini is the go-to platform for beginners and sophisticated investors alike looking to build their crypto empire. It's available in more than 50 countries with industry-leading security, insurance, and uptime. You'll get access to the best performing assets of the decade, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. Schedule your reoccurring buys on the Gemini mobile app to steadily build your position and go long and strong on crypto. Open a free account today in under three minutes at Gemini.com bully. If you do, you get 10 bucks in Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within 30 days. Once again, that's Gemini.com slash bully. So getting into, I guess, the the kind of actual attributes of the network upgrade, I, I was researching before this and I saw Coindesk had a quote and I, I just want to read the quote and then we okay. can talk about it. It says, Taproot would implement Schnorr signatures into Bitcoin, a cryptographic technique for signing transactions that would enable Bitcoin with more flexible and private smart contracts. So there's a there's yeah. so much to unpack there. Um, what I guess is the first question is what is a <laughs> Schnorr signature? Okay, so Schnorr signatures are actually pretty old. Um, they are a uh, excuse me, sorry. They're a uh, old uh, standard that. Uh, Satoshi probably would have used, except for the fact that it was patented. Um, uh, Schnorr, I can't, I can't remember his first name, but uh, the Schnorr guy um, patented it. And uh, because of that, there were no good open libraries for it. Like it didn't become a really good standard because um, uh, well, you couldn't use it. You had to pay somebody to use it. Um, and, uh, and in doing so, basically ECDSA uh, is... As far as I remember the, the history, ECDSA was actually a way to do a lot of what Schnorr signatures did in a slightly more complicated way, but to avoid the patent. Um, it, was, it was a modification of it to create an open standard as opposed to a patented one. Um, and so I think the patent had just run out or was just about to run out for Schnorr, but because ECDSA had so many more open tools and was so much easier to work with at that point because it was the open version uh satoshi went with ecdsa um now many years later patent is open libraries schnorr has become a much more um reliable and open standard and it has benefits it has quite a few benefits um uh, signatures are smaller um i think it's from like 72 bytes or um 72 to like 61 or something like that um even the addresses like the public keys are just a teeny weeny bit smaller um and one of the really cool things that you can do uh that you can't really do with ecdsa or at least not without like a big headache um is add signatures together so when you send a bitcoin transaction you lock it up like you set a, a set of restrictions on it um and you want restrictions because otherwise anybody can just do anything they want with it uh so when you send me bitcoin you basically write a transaction that says 
uh, it has an, a restriction on it that just says only the person who has this explicit key um, and you put a lock on it uh, can uh, open it. Um, but, you know, if we want like a bunch of different alternatives, if we want like a bunch of different ways to unlock this, like let's say we want me to be able to unlock it by myself if I wait a year. But uh, in the meantime, we need both of our signatures. Um, so we need your key and my key. Uh, and then, you know, maybe also that if uh, uh, your key isn't around, uh, maybe we also want it so that my key and uh, a joint lawyer, you know, a legal firm's key could unlock it after 30 days rather than me having to wait a year if, you know, you get hit by a bus. That would be very, that would be terrible news. But, you know, I still want my Bitcoin. Um, and to, to do that right now, we have to put all those locks on the transaction. Uh, we have to, we, we, there's a lot of data on what is a very limited resource block space. Um, so we've got our, both of our locks and then we've got a path of uh, the lawyer, the law firm's locks and my lock and then my lock and uh, a time delay. Um, so that's like a, just a bunch of paragraphs of stuff. And Schnorr has a way to just kind of add all that stuff together so that it's one lock. Like I just give me your lock and then I'll add mine to it and then add the law firms. And it's not quite so simple. There's some little, you know, nonces and some checksum sort of things that you got to do. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, you just have one lock and all of this complexity is essentially underneath it. It's, it's hidden, um, which is good for a couple of reasons. One is that you can just stack locks. Um, this is this is what gets into something like the Merkleized abstract syntax trees, the MAST, um, and we can just make branches upon branches. Like we could just have it so that the law firm now has to have uh, some financial institution and your key and uh, their family trust key uh, after six months, and then uh, if um, I wait for a year, well, I could do that or um, uh, you know reveal some. Uh, hash secret from the NBA if some team wins a game and and release it like like we could just make <laughs> branches and branches of all sorts of different options and essentially have it so that there's fail safe on top of fail safe on top of fail safe and no matter what the Bitcoin can go somewhere in every possible scenario that we could think of going wrong or event happening or whatever but at the end of the day we can hash this down into a tree and all we ever, and rather than having to post all the leaves and all the branches and all the different forks in this tree, we can actually just post the trunk, like just the root um, of this thing that is, again, just looks like one lock. And we can do all of this complexity and make it incredibly small and very easy to validate um, and uh, also private, you know? Like you don't, nobody has to know that it's both of our keys in the law firms and a one year time delay. Uh, they just see one lock, you know, and I can either unlock it or I can't. Um, so just so I understand the, the lock that people see is like the public transaction that yes. occurs on the network. Yeah. And then, so below that there's other data that's not available to the public that might have these sort of nuances about who can unlock it and who yes, needs the Yes, it's, it's needed right? to, uh, recreate an opened lock like to, to open the lock you know the 
personal, the private person or like you and I on the back end need that information to unlock it. I'm um, just like, you know, our private key. Um, but uh, uh, nobody else sees it. Um, and in fact, uh, so there's always basically a case where if everybody involved agrees, um, well, we just sign it. And it's just one, again, just the same way as it's one lock, it's one signature um, uh, afterward mm -hmm. uh, to unlock it. But if something goes wrong and I need to do one of those branches, um, I all I do is just reveal the two or three points of data to get to the branch that I'm executing on rather than revealing the whole tree. Um, so gotcha. basically across the board, um, it's it's better for privacy because I don't have to reveal all of this stuff that could have been an option if I never actually have to use it. Um, and uh, if everything goes well and I'm not having to use some sort of a backup or a fail safe path, well, then we don't have to reveal anything. We just sign it and go about. And usually this, the fact that I can use a branch um, uh, in this tree is enough to even get an uncooperative party to be like, fine, I'll sign it. You know, like they can't do anything without it. So it's like an inevitability. Either you're going to make me wait for 30 days or we're just going to do this now and save money and time and complications. So unless they're just really pissed off at me in some joint agreement, uh, there's no reason for them to uh, fight it because at the end of the day, the Bitcoin court is going to give out, uh, give it to the rightful owner. Sure. So that's, that's sort of the key aspect as to how Taproot enhances Bitcoin's privacy is this Schnorr signature. Is there anything else in the upgrade that could enhance privacy or is that sort of the main component there? Um, uh, that's, that's pretty much the main component. Um, mm -hmm. And in that it, uh, it also allows something called um, adapter signatures because you can do, uh, you can do math with it. Um, uh, it, it allows for additional, like, like, we'll use an example of uh, Lightning Network, um, is uh, when you send a transaction over uh, the Lightning, oh, crap, maybe I need to explain the Lightning Network briefly. Um, uh, so Sorry, I was, I was muted. I, I, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago. So yeah. if any of my listeners are listening, they can go listen to the Desiree Dickerson. She's the okay. VP of Ops from Lightning Network. I had her on and she did a great job. So awesome. That'll save us lots, <laughs> that of can be, lots of time. Yeah, that can be required <laughs> reading for anyone listening. Okay. Um, so uh, uh, the cool thing about adapter signatures is that you can put arbitrary information into your signature. So you, you can tweak your signature to require something else to be valid. Um, so like there's like a couple of different Lego pieces that you put in to get a valid signature at the end. And what you're doing is essentially um, uh, stacking an extra Lego piece in there um, as that's required, but then you take you take it out when you give it over so that, uh, God, God bless, how do you explain this so that it's easy to picture? Um, uh, when, probably best way, let, let's go back to Lightning Network. So when you're sending a transaction, you have uh, your normal Bitcoin key and then an extra secret. And the secret is specific to the payment that's going through Lightning. So I'm sending it to you. Um, uh, the way an adapter signature works is that rather than having a separate secret and a signature, is that 
I have an incomplete signature that I need to stick that secret onto to make it the full signature. So rather than having two, um, a full piece and another full piece, I have a half a piece, which is, uh, I have a half a piece and then I'm sticking the rest of it on there to finish it. So at the end of the day, I still just have the one signature. The secret is just subtracted from that signature. So it's smaller rather than added on. Um, I gotcha. And, uh, but the, the kind of fun trick with that is that with uh, um, uh, something like, uh, uh, like the Lightning Network um, is that you can, you can attach a whole kinds of, again, you can, th this is just kind of agnostic, right? It's just a, it's just a secret number, um, like any kind of private key. So this is where you can start doing really, really fun stuff. This is what enables uh, L2, which is a significant update to uh, the Lightning Network um, that kind of frees up uh, how you can uh, exit or enter into the Lightning Network. And it's, uh, it's also agnostic in a sense. So uh, like something like, uh, have you uh, done an episode or dug into the lightning pool thing? Not yet. That would probably be sort of lightning 201. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Um, uh, is that it's, there's a really cool trick called a shadow chain um, that is a way to attach a lightning network transaction um, uh, like a shadow chain is you're 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 lifting bit you're lifting Bitcoin out into a multi-sig agreement that looks a lot like Lightning Network, a Lightning Network channel. But when you make a payment or you attach it to a, a hash to a little secret, is that that's completely application agnostic. So you can be running any sort of code. You can be running an ICO, you can be running an Ethereum contract, you can be running a decentralized exchange. It doesn't matter. All it takes is this this one little secret. Um, and that is the hash of the operation of whatever this generic application is. Um, so this is how you get full contract flexibility and doing whatever you want on something like Lightning Network without any of the base layer restrictions because the base layer only has to uh, make sure the signature is right and make sure the hash is right, which is the one thing that it's incredibly good at. Um, mm -hmm. But that hash is an execution of some huge complex whatever the heck we want it to be application um and so that's how they created lightning pool which is a non-custodial uh so it's a, a a decentralized um i guess you could refer to it as that um but it's non-custodial like you don't have to trust anybody exchange like it's a it's a market maker for somebody who needs lightning liquidity and somebody who has it um and they match prices everybody validates that everything went according to plan and everything's accurate. And if anything's wrong, everybody just, I'm not gonna do anything and they get their coins back. Uh, but if everything's right, you you execute the exchange and somebody gets a channel and gets the liquidity and everybody did it without ever having to actually trust someone else with their money. Um, and it's a market, you know? Um, this sort of thing is made uh, much easier and more efficient with something like uh, adapter signatures. Um, and L2 makes the Lightning Network easier to uh, open and close and manage things like backups and watchtowers. Um, so all of the all of the fail safes and the security of Lightning become uh, more compact and easier to deal with. Nice in a, in a handful of different ways, actually. That's great. Yeah. So it, it not only has positive benefits on the 
base layer, but it also seems to have some positive upstream impacts on layer two solutions as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so before, you know, we're, we're already running out of time, which I'm, <laughs> that's, it's too bad. I, I did get a user question. Somebody said, I'd love to hear in layman's terms, how you're able to keep the upgrade backwards compatible with older Bitcoin clients, e.g. somebody running a, v, a version 0.1 node, be able to verify these new blocks. And I think that goes to your soft fork point, but yeah. I'd be curious to hear what your response is. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a there's there's a lot of different places where we can kind of change data or tweak data where as long as after we sign it, um, like this is actually kind of one of the really cool things about SegWit actually, um, which was a soft fork that uh, did something pretty neat in uh, the combination of solving a uh, bit of an issue prior to it. Um, uh, referred to as malleability. Um, but whenever you're confirming anything or validating anything on the blockchain, uh, you're doing it with hashes to make sure that the data of the transaction and then the hash of that transaction are accurate and they follow all the rules. And um, there was this one little trick uh, where you could actually sign the same data, like the same valid data, um, uh, in a way that everything was exactly the same. You could tweak the signature after having a transaction and it would mess with the transaction ID. None of the, none of the data would change. None of the transactions or the amounts or anything like that would change, but the ID would change. So um, the transaction itself, it's like, it's like being able to modify a receipt number so that if somebody tries to look it up by the receipt number, um, they can't find it. So like if I, if I went to a, a Target and gave them a receipt, they would be like, okay, this is a valid receipt number. Let me look it up in my computer. Okay, there's no refund to it. So let me issue, a re issue you a refund. And then I go, I go outside. If I, can if I can tweak that receipt number without changing any of the details on the receipt, well, I can come back in and be like, here's my receipt. I need a refund. And they look it up by the receipt number. No refund because it's new. Um, and so they issue a refund. This is what happened with uh, Mt. Gox. If you're running a completely full node, not an issue. Um, but if you're trying to do a shortcut, uh, it's an issue. Um, SegWit separated the signature from it because of that um, vulnerability. Um, uh, and to make light clients and the, that shortcut more secure. So it hashes them separately and then puts them together. So if you, uh, um, you can always just check that the information in the transaction uh, is accurate before checking the signature. But the cool thing about it is that now you can make modifications and things to the signature without having to worry about changing anything in the transaction. So we can add a little bit of data. We can, we can uh, tack on a new script and the old, all the old nodes will still be able to check the hashes and still be able to check the transaction data. But if there's something new in the script, they'll know that it's a valid hash and a valid signature, but they just might not be able to read the script in it. As long as enough new nodes and enough new miners can, well, then it's not an issue. 
as long as they can verify the base consensus rules, as long as they can verify the um, the amounts and that there's been no inflation, monetary schedules the same, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody had the keys, which all of that stuff they can still validate. It doesn't really matter if I put an extra set of instructions in mine, as long as it stays within the consensus rules of all the old ones. Sure. Uh, the, the complication is that since it can't read that extra little piece of instruction that's new, um, all the old all the old clients can't, is that if enough miners don't upgrade, that that specific instruction could be lied about to old nodes. So since like let's let's say I've just put in an extra instruction that uh, uh, guy has to say happy birthday, and somehow all the new nodes can validate that this happened. Well, the old nodes can't. Um, so if I don't say happy birthday, all the old nodes will not know. They won't be able to check it. They'll just know that the signature is right with the data underneath it. Um, and they'll put it in the blockchain. The new nodes will be like, no, no, I didn't, I didn't hear him say happy birthday. So it's invalid. So you need a majority of the miners and the nodes. Um, uh, well, more of the miners actually, since they're making the blocks, um, but you want a lot of the nodes as well, um, just for propagation and make sure that everybody, everything's in consensus and running smoothly. Um, they need to be able to see that that instruction was wrong so that even if some 5% of the miners or something like that uh, is, uh, does put an incorrect instruction for the, the new feature um, into their block, it immediately gets rejected. It doesn't get propagated and that sort of stuff. You don't want like 50-50, right? Um, because that opens up to a malicious actor. But if you've got like 80%, 90% of the miners, um, no, no blockchain with any sort of invalid data of this new little uh, tweak that we're doing um, is going to get anywhere. The, sure. the main chain, the longest chain is always going to be accurate data. So it's, it's, it's a little hairy, you know, it, yeah. there, there is a vulnerability um, because old nodes uh, can't read the whole, essentially the whole paragraph. Mm -hmm. um, they can only verify that the signature is uh, of that paragraph. Um, but the new nodes can actually make sense of that final sentence um, and uh, uh, they need to be, there need to be plenty of them reading and making sure that that, you know, happy birthday is there. That's a weird sure. example, but whatever. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's easy to understand. So I appreciate that. Cool. Well, um, unfortunately, we're out of time. I might have to have you back on once it launches just to right. <laughs> ask you more questions about it because this is really interesting. And I think my listeners will find it interesting. So I appreciate your time, Guy. Awesome. Yeah. Super helpful. Um, Dude, thank for, all, you. for all my listeners who are looking to follow him, go follow him at thecryptoeconomy.com um, on Twitter. And there's also listen to his podcast, Bitcoin Audible. Um, and, yeah, and you he, can actually find it. Crypto economy is people have a hard time spelling it. Um, so uh, you can actually get to all of it from guyswan.com, which is a oh, lot easier. Perfect. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> I've just kind of made it my my hub that connects to everything else. You can get to Shitcoin Insider, uh, Bitcoin Audible, the Crypto Economy Holiday Calendar, and my Survivor <laughs> book list, YouTube, all that good stuff. So awesome. Yeah. Yes. All right. GuySwan.com. Please go check it out. And uh, Guy, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, man. Dude, good chat. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter at BullyESQ 
to continue the conversation. See you next week.